Welcome back to The Ideal Cast. I'm your host, Gene Kim. In the last episode, I had such a fun time interviewing two of my four DevOps Handbook co-authors, Patrick Dubois and John Willis. So today we have on my other two co-authors, Jez Humble and Dr. Nicole Forsgren. As I mentioned last time, the original idea was to interview each one of these co-authors and ask them four questions. One, tell me the story behind your original DevOps aha moment, each of which were written about in the DevOps handbook. Two, what is the most interesting thing that you've learned since the book came out in 2016? Three, what is your favorite DevOps pattern or practice? And four, what is your favorite DevOps case study? So that was it. I asked each one of the co-authors those questions, and holy cow, those questions took each one of those interviews into incredibly surprising and unexpected and super fun places. I had mentioned last time that they were especially surprising since I had spent literally hundreds of hours with each one of them and never heard those stories. And that's why we broke them up into two episodes. So just a few words on the DevOps Handbook. Last year, I read through the first edition again, which we released in 2016, and my reaction was, holy cow, I really love this book. I think the book stands up so well after six years in a way that so many technology books don't. I think it's because we did a good job sticking with principles, which should remain, if not timeless, they should remain relevant for a decade or more, which is a characteristic of a great book. And since the book came out, it has sold over a quarter million copies. But as much as I love the first edition of the book, I love the second edition even more. There's 15 new case studies, mostly from the DevOps enterprise community, including Fannie Mae, American Airlines, the U.S. Air Force, Adidas. There's over 100 pages of new or updated content, including so many of the solidified learnings from the State of DevOps Research and the Accelerate book. There's a new forward and material from Dr. Nicole Forsgren. There's an updated afterward, including sections from each one of the five co-authors. So again, I really want to thank Dr. Nicole Forsgren for leading this effort. To fully motivate this, forgive me for repeating a story that I mentioned last time. Like many authors, I find the prospect of doing a second edition of a book to be a very challenging endeavor. And I know it's not just me. I mentioned last time that one of my favorite interviews of an author is from Nobel laureate Dr. Richard Thaler, who wrote about his pioneering work in behavioral economics in a book called Nudge. He was recently on an NPR Planet Money podcast, and he talks about how important it was to him that the words final edition appear in the title because of the huge undertaking it involved. So when interviewer Greg Rosalski says at the end of the interview that he looks forward to interviewing Dr. Thaler in 13 years when there's a new edition of the book, Dr. Thaler responds, go to hell, Greg. (laughs) So what a fabulous, fabulous interview. I will include a link to that interview in the show notes. So thank you to Dr. Nicole Forsgren for making this second edition possible. So in this episode, in my interview of Jez Humble, we'll learn about some projects that Jez and I worked on together before the DevOps handbook came out. What life is like for him being a site reliability engineer at Google, supporting, among other things, the Google Cloud Run product, which I love so much, and what he's learned as an SRE. The story behind his DevOps aha moment in 2004 working on a large software project involving 70 developers. They had been working for years when Jez joined, and every time they deployed every couple of months, it would take them an entire weekend involving Gantt charts and multiple teams. The amazing architectural properties of his favorite programming language, PHP, and what it has in common with ASP.NET. This amazing virtuous property 
that are missing from other programming languages and platforms, and the importance of being able to get fast feedback while you're building something. The anguish that he felt when Mike Nygaard's amazing book Release It came out, wondering if there was still a need for the book he was working on, which was Continuous Delivery. And testing on the toilet and other great structures for creating distributed learning across an organization, and why this is so important to create a genuine learning dynamic. And after that, in my interview with Dr. Nicole Forsgren, we will talk about what she's working on now as partner and VP of Research and Strategy at Microsoft, some of Dr. Forsgren's goals as we work together on the state of DevOps research, and how it feels to have those findings so widely used and cited within the technology community, about the importance of finding the link between technology performance and organizational performance, and why it probably was so elusive for at least 40 years in the research community. What she's learned about the importance of culture, how it can make or break an organization, and the importance of great leadership. And why the Dr. Chris Streer story about improving flow in an emergency department in a hospital, and the bonus story from the U.S. Navy are her favorite case studies in the DevOps handbook. Okay, let's go to the interviews, and I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I did. You're listening to The Ideal Cast with Gene Kim, brought to you by IT Revolution. I met Jez Humble in 2011 at a Kanban for Operations event that our mutual friend Domenica DeGrandis ran. And it is difficult for me to overstate just how much I've learned in almost every interaction that we've had. I had read his book, Continuous Delivery, before. But the working calls that we had for over four years working on the DevOps handbook from 2013 to 2016 showed just how much I hadn't fully internalized and just how radically different these newer ways of working were for both developers and for operations. During those calls, Jez continually shocked me with stories about how, say, InView handled database schema changes, how Facebook pulled off their dark launches, how you actually do trunk-based development, how you do blue-green deployments for thick client point-of-sale devices, and so much more. Jez and I also worked together on the State of DevOps Research Project in 2013. This was one year before Dr. Nicole Forsgren joined that team, and I still remember how it felt when we found those first clusters of high, medium, and low-performing organizations, and how exhilarating that was. You know, when I tell a story like this, it sounds like Jez and I had identical theories of what was required from dev and ops to get high performance. But especially going into that first year of the study, we had some areas that we definitely had different views on, and we were using the study to see which one of us (laughs) was right. So one of the biggest bets that we had was who ideally should be performing production deployments. Representing the side of development was Jez, which makes sense given all the experience that he had doing continuous delivery. He believed that there were so many idiosyncrasies in the code that only developers would be able to make informed judgments about how and when to deploy the code. Representing operations was me, which I suppose also makes sense given the fact that a book that I co-authored in 2004 was titled Visible Ops Implementing ITIL in Four Practical Steps. I believe that the production environment had so many idiosyncrasies that it was only operations people who could make informed judgments about how and when to deploy production code. So we put a question into the survey. Who performed the production deployments? Dev, ops, or I suppose other. And we had a bet about who would have the lower change failure rates. 
And the answer was pretty surprising to both of us because it turns out it didn't matter at all. If you take the entire population where devs deployed and the entire population where ops deployed and you compare their change failure rates, it was basically the same. It turns out it didn't actually matter who pushed the button. What did matter was what technical practices were they using? To what extent were they using version control for all artifacts, both for code and the environment? To what extent were they using automated testing? To what extent environment creation was automated? And to what extent was there an automated way to deploy code into production? It was those things that mattered. And if those things were there, it didn't matter who pushed the button to deploy code. So during the state of DevOps research, there were so many other examples of similar aha moments and personal theories and bets that we had made that led to such surprising outcomes. And in this interview, Jez also reminded me that we worked on another project together just around this time. In 2013, Jez had created a conference called FlowCon. Its goal was to span boundaries. He wrote, we believe that the best products are created collaboratively by people with a range of skills and experiences. So he put together a programming committee that had representation from UX, testing, operations, product development, and development. So with me on that programming committee was Jez, Elizabeth Hendrickson, who you heard from in the first season, Lane Halley, and John Esser. I learned so much about how to put together amazing conference programs through this experience, and I formed so many of my own sensibilities, of which I talked about at length in the last episode with Patrick Dubois and John Willis. And here's another thing that came out of those nearly five years of having nearly weekly calls with Jez on one project or another. I've mentioned that after learning the closure programming language in 2016, I went from two decades of self-identifying as an ops person to now decisively self-identifying as a developer. Looking back, I think what set the stage for that was these calls with Jez, which significantly upped my own expectations of what anyone should be able to do for themselves. In fact, in this interview, you're going to hear about how the survey engine that powered nearly all years of the State of DevOps Report projects were run on something that Jez built in PHP. <laughs> so these days, Jez is a site reliability engineer at Google, supporting Google Cloud Run, my favorite way of running almost everything in production these days, and a bunch of other customer-facing Google services. I asked him about what he's working on these days. So I've introduced you, Jez, and I've gushed to you about how much fun and how it's rewarding to have worked with you over the years and more adventures to come, certainly. So what are you working on these days? Yeah, so I just want to, first of all, echo what an absolute pleasure it's been to work with you over the years on uh, State of DevOps, on the DevOps Handbook, um, on uh, Flowcon, in fact, back in the day. And then, <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and then, Which is where we met uh, Randy Schaup, um, who built Google App Engine that we were talking about before. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, he, uh, he was, he was a, a big piece of App Engine. Um, uh, what I'm working on now is I'm an SRE at Google. So I am an SRE as part of the serverless team. So we are responsible for um, App Engine, Cloud Run, Cloud Functions. Uh, I'm on call for those products, so uh, try not to break them. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, having a lot of fun learning how Google works, how Google does things, and, and how SRE works. Is uh, SRE everything that uh, you hoped it would be? What's been the best and the worst? And by the way, I, I actually love Google Cloud Run. I think it's just brilliantly conceived. Yeah, it's great. People love it. I think it definitely filled a gap. And 
getting more and more popular. We're seeing huge uptake, and <laughs> it seems to solve a real problem that people people have, and people like using it, as you say, right. which is which is great. So yeah, I'm on call for Cloud Run, um, yeah. and also for App Engine and Cloud Functions as well. App um, Engine, yeah. I mean, so people, it's funny. Like people talk about Heroku, but like App Engine was there first, and uh, you know, we, we I think it enables so many things that we we talk about today as if they were obvious, um, but it never seemed to get kind of the the recognition that say Heroku did, which I don't know. And Cloud Run, I think the paradigm is just much simpler and it's much easier to understand and the life cycle's easier and it's more flexible and uh you know we're doing a lot of active development on it there's there's new <laughs> stuff coming out all the time um so so yeah glad that you like it and i uh, do and i'm you know i i really like working in sre it's been an incredibly <laughs> steep learning curve just because the systems that we operate are so large and so complex but I've learned, my God, I've learned so much. And it's been fascinating. I mean, obviously, Google invented SRE. So there's there's a lot to learn. <laughs> but I've just, you know, honestly, I've really enjoyed just focusing on my job and not doing anything else apart from <laughs> hanging out at home. Like, I don't give talks. I don't really do any extracurricular stuff anymore. Mm. I'm just, I've got my job and I've got my my home life. life. I work from home. <laughs> um, and that's really nice. Uh, my life was pretty complex um, for the 10 years before that. And now it's pretty simple and I can just be very heads down focusing on what I'm doing and I'm learning a ton and it's really yeah. interesting and working with people I like. like. Like, Give me one example of something fun you learned that was uh, rewarding, mind-blowing. All right, so it's kind of interesting. Um, SRECon, what I'm working on at the moment um, SRECon a few weeks ago, um, Narayan Desai, um, who's a colleague of mine working in SRE, but for like some of our data products, he's come up with this way of thinking about reliability that is based on basically taking your workloads and then profiling them statistically. You find cohorts and you find cohorts that have low variability in the distribution of whatever it is you're interested in, which in my case at the moment is latency. Yeah. Um, so you take your entire workload, divide, divide it into cohorts that behave similarly, that have low variability. And then you kind of look for this property called stationarity, which is that the, this, the statistical distribution stays the same over time. Um, and you look for ways in which the workloads diverge from that. So um, I really recommend checking out his talk, um, but it's basically an alternative approach to using thresholds for monitoring. And mm -hmm. even SLO is fundamentally a threshold based. But they don't take into account, you know, what what loads are important versus not important. Which kind of workloads are behaving in which ways? They don't give you like an understanding of what's going on under the hood. Um, and so, I think this is really promising and really fascinating. Is it and just another axis of a, a behavior of a workload? You know, besides like error rates or so forth, it's the kind of expected. It, so uh, instead of like setting a threshold for error rates, and once the aggregate error rates go below the threshold, you get ah. an alert. We're looking at, well, let's look at the actual workloads and see how the, the workloads are, are changing their behavior and alert based on changes of behavior from the statistical distribution that we've we've modeled for those workloads. So you don't have to set a, a threshold. You just say, well, let, let's look and see if these workloads have changed how they're behaving. And that is based on the actual behavior of the system rather than some arbitrary threshold. And it gives you a lot more insight into you know, what's actually going on in your system. So I think it's a very, very interesting, fruitful approach. 
early days yet, um, but I, I'm finding it pretty exciting. Ah, that's exciting. I'm so happy for you, Jez. Gene here. It was at this point when I was reading the introduction that I had written for him, and I was telling him how fun it was summing up all those memories and what it felt like for me during those endless DevOps handbook writing sessions, and at times how bewildering they were to me. Uh, summing up those memories. <laughs> I just remember how exhilarating that was, and I remember how many times I asked you, like, tell me again the, the dark launch story, because I don't fully get it. <laughs> like, I don't understand what the big deal is, and just the aha moment. I just want to tell you this is to convey my gratitude and just how much fun it was. Not at all. And like, uh, I, I shared those very strong memories of, um, you know, learning so much uh, about how to think about high performance. And before Nicole joined the team, you were the stats expert. And so you were the person <laughs> who kind of came, came up with those diagrams. And uh, yeah, that, that was very cool to see. So yeah, I mean, I, I share the fact that it was, it's been an incredible collaboration, very exciting, very fruitful. And, uh, you know, obviously, um, the DevOps handbook has been like, incredibly impactful. So, uh, Jez, uh, you had introduced to me all the exciting work that was happening as you were working on the continuous delivery book. Presumably, twenty. when did you start the book? Uh, so the book started in 2006. 2006, okay. So, uh, a gestation period, much like, much like the yes, DevOps handbook. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was a four-year four project. Oh, know? brilliant. Uh, so... All this work was converging together, everything from the continuous integration community, the extreme programming community, continuous delivery, Kent Beck, uh, so much more. So can you describe what it felt like as you saw all these practices coming together and how that informed you writing the continuous delivery book uh, during those four years? Yeah, that's a great question. And I could probably talk a lot about that. So where it started was was at ThoughtWorks, where I got a job 2004 and one of the first projects I got put on was this 70-person project that I described before at a large internet provider in London <laughs> uh, where we were building a, a replacement system to replace their existing system, which was all written in Perl. Their architects had gone <laughs> and bought a bunch of WebLogic licenses, so they had to like rebuild the system in Java so they could make use of these WebLogic licenses they'd bought. And uh, you know, we ended up working on this team actually getting the software to deploy into a production-like environment, which is Solaris. And with a bunch of automation that devs had written that the ops people didn't like because it was written in Ant and they wanted to use Bash. And, <laughs> and so, you know, it wasn't, it, I wasn't aware of being part of a movement at all. What I was aware of was coming from a previous situation where I'd worked at startups where there was like two or three people on the technical team. And we were just FTP directly from our workstations into prod multiple times a day. There was no automated testing. You just check it works in your workstation, FTP it. And then if there was a problem, you just like fix it and FTP the fix. And what were you FTPing? Uh, jar so files? ASP.net. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so it's mainly Visual Basic and uh, SQL Server, uh, MS SQL Server on the, on the back end. And yeah, you just, I mean, we wouldn't even deploy the whole thing at once. We'd just deploy whatever file we changed. And... Yeah, I mean, you know, we, we messed it up a few times and <laughs> broke things. And there was probably things that were broken that we didn't notice. So, you know, it wasn't exactly a, a high quality process, but it worked and it was fine. And, and it was fast. Uh, super fast and super iterative. And, you know, it was very rare that you would that I would work on something that I wasn't deploying into prod the same day that I wrote it. And that was pretty uncommon. And I went from that into this project where, I, you know, ThoughtWorks was working on this thing 
70 people where we worked for months without anything getting deployed. And when we did deploy, it was over the weekend with a massive Gantt chart. And it, you know, it's such a culture shock for me. And I was lucky to work on a team with a bunch of really smart and brilliant people, Dan North, Chris Reed, Sam Newman, and a bunch of other less known but equally brilliant people, Dante Briones, Tim Harding, a couple of other people whose, whose names escape me at the moment, but like equally awesome people. And, and yeah, the, that team came up with a whole bunch of ideas to basically make it suck a lot less. <laughs> and that was the genesis of the continuous delivery book. And, and Dave Farley, my co-author, he was working on a different ThoughtWorks project where, as you mentioned, the, the point of service auto upgrades like CD for point of service systems, equally hairy and miserable and difficult. And I think, you know, if you, if you look at what ThoughtWorks was doing at the time, we were taking extreme programming. You know, Martin Fallow was our chief scientist. He's obviously the, the pioneer of refactoring, a big part of continuous integration, obviously a big part of XP and the early agile movement. And we were taking those ideas and applying them in companies where you were not even allowed to say the word agile <laughs> because it was too scary. And it would, you know, you wouldn't, you don't want to freak out the managers. So it, it didn't feel like being part of a movement, but it, it felt like being part of the agile movement. That's how we identified ourselves as just people who are implementing agile in enterprise situations. And I think, you know, what, what we found was this was this part, the build test deployment part, it was treated as a, an afterthought, but actually it's where a lot of the pain was. And so the book was just about how to solve those pain points. And then about, you know, a year into the writing of two years into the writing of the book, Mike Nygaard's release it book came out. And I remember <laughs> getting that book and being like, oh shit, he's written my book. Right. He's beaten me to it. <laughs> and, you know, and I, I was, I was, you know, genuinely both upset, but also reading it. It was a, it's a great book. It's a great book. <laughs> um, and what, I else le- what else is there left? <laughs> but it turns out there was plenty left. It's, you know, and this is, I think, you know, I often have to talk myself out of zero sum thinking. And that was one of those occasions where I really had to do that. And, and you know, you realize now there's room for like so many books on this topic. But at the time, that was perhaps the first book that covered this, this topic. And Continuous Delivery was the second book, you know, a year before we released Continuous Delivery, Tim Fitz's uh, blog post on continuous deployment, uh, MVU came out. I wasn't really aware of the velocity thing until, actually, no, I was. I did find out about that because I asked John Allsport to review the book and write a, a, a praise quote for it. So, so all these things started coming together, but only two or three years into the book writing. And then, you know, 2010, when the book came out, we just had the first... DevOps days, I guess. And it, you know, it just so happened that it, we launched it at the right place at the right time, but it was not through any, any planning, but it was definitely very exciting when there was so much buzz around it and you realize, oh, there's a movement. This is actually a movement and it's an industry wide movement and it's transformational. And, you know, we're seeing that play out. We've seen it play out and we see it continue to play out now, but it, you know, it wasn't through any any planning, but it was very exciting when when all that all these little things started popping out and, and and it just turned into a wave. 
It's funny, I was talking to Patrick, uh, and, and these have been so fun. So he, I was asking him about that, his project where he had his aha moment, and he was essentially the infrastructure person. And so uh, his role in the project was essentially to disappear for two, three weeks, racking, stacking servers, configuring things. And so he said, um, you know, using Slayer Zones, it was the first time that, you know, something that would have normally taken like a week, you can do in like 10 seconds. And it was the first time that he could actually be a part of the team. <laughs> and it was transformative. So I love hearing your story about this 2004 project. So when you talk about Chris Reed and Dan North, I mean, were these, why you all? <laughs> was it because you were the leftovers, not good enough to be the working on the real features? Or was it because you gravitated to the problem? Like, why why you all? So ThoughtWorks UK at the time had this position called Infrastructure and Environments. I can't remember what the exact title was, mm. but like person, basically. And I got hired into that role. Um, Julian Simpson interviewed me, Dave Farley interviewed me. And so there's a whole bunch of people who basically realized that infrastructure management and engineering was, was a thing. I don't know who came up with that role, probably some combination of the people I've, I've just mentioned. Um, and, you know, Dan North was a pretty big deal in the Agile community in London at the time. There's a whole group of kind of, uh, of, of people who were doing a lot of XP in London and they had regular meetups. There was uh, Extreme Tuesdays. They would get, go down the pub and, and talk about extreme programming. So there was already like a, a community in London uh, doing extreme programming and talking about it, uh, a whole bunch of people. Um, and so I just got hired into that role because they needed people who knew about infrastructure and software and ideally agile, although I'd never really done agile development by that point. And I just got thrown onto this project. So it was completely random from my perspective, but mm. definitely from ThoughtWorks' perspective, they were intentional about this. And it came out of the fact that we were practicing XP, but we, we saw this, this gap, which was the infrastructure and environments piece. It, which warranted putting you know, some extremely talented and experienced people on the team. Right. They, they needed people who filled this kind of weird, weird hole. And I filled that weird hole because I'd worked at a startup and I had to do everything. <laughs> so... Uh, I didn't, you know, I, I, I'd racked servers. I, you know, had to go down to the data center because I telnetted into a port um, <laughs> and then brought down the interface to fix something and then disconnected myself and the rest of the internet from our production <laughs> environment. You know, so I'd done these dumb things um, and, and had to do coding and infrastructure all in the same day and didn't really distinguish between any of this stuff because it's just, you know, it's a problem that needs to be solved. You, you've got to fix it's It's just all technology. And so I just happened to fit into that hole. Awesome. Yeah. Before we leave that topic, this is actually this question I've been dragging around for probably five plus years. We once talked about how <clears throat> interesting it was that how widely used PHP was, and that one of the interesting properties of PHP is that you can deploy one file at a time, very much like uh, ASP.NET. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, unlike so a jar file where you have to compile the whole thing, right, and uh, push out the whole thing. It, what? It, to what extent do you think that? was an important property and have we lost something by not deploy just one little piece of the property at a time yeah I, I I actually believe that I think that's a very insightful um, comment and uh, I kind of joked that PHP is the original microservices architecture because every file in PHP <laughs> is effectively a microservice um, <laughs> you know and that's that's kind of a joke, but there is some truth in it as well. Um, and the fact that you can independently deploy the different pieces, uh, I think, 
is actually an interesting architectural property. We, we, I mean, we, we researched this in the Dora research, of course, and, and we found that the ability to independently test and deploy individual components was one of several parts of that architecture construct, which we found strongly predicts the ability to practice continuous delivery. So we know that it's important from the research and it is an architectural property of that platform, which I think, you know, my experience backs up what the research says, which is that that capability is actually hugely important. I think there's other things about PHP that are nice as well. Um, you know, there's no warm-up time, there's no VM, it's all <laughs> written in C. There's this, there's this huge library in PHP. It's so easy to get things done because there's this huge library. Like if you look at the code in the libraries, you'd probably throw up <laughs> and, and be very anxious about, about what it about your life choices. But the fact is that <laughs> it, it, it's really powerful and it works and the, the feedback cycle is so fast. And I think that's the critical thing. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you, I'm sure you do remember Elizabeth Hendrickson gave me, giving that talk the, on the care and feeding of feedback cycles yes. um, at Flowcon back in the day. And I think that it was, that focus on feedback cycles, I think was a game changer for me because that ultimately is what it comes down to. And you just get these very fast feedbacks. The other famous talk, Oh, I can't remember the, the guy who gave it. He's an Apple guy. He was talking about the ability to prototype and see how things change as you prototype it. This will come back to you. You're talking about not Victor. Uh, yeah. Brett Victor. Brett Victor. Brett right. Victor. There you go. Yeah. So he gave that talk about, you know, he, he built this little JavaScript game and he was changing parameters and the game was changing in real time. And his whole comment is like, you know, if you can change something and see the change as you're changing it, yeah. It's incredibly powerful in your ability to create things and, and build things that, that are good. And yeah. I think PHP gives you that. I don't, I, you know, who knows to what extent it was intentional. Gene here. <laughs> uh, super funny commentary on uh, the common properties of PHP, ASP, ASP.NET, and so forth. Uh, it's also super interesting that all those properties are negated when you have to put them into a container <laughs> where you are once again having to upload a whole new container image, not being able to upload just one file at a time. Okay, uh, number two, I was so surprised that Jez brought up Brett Victor. I'm going to read from his Wikipedia entry. Brett Victor worked as a human interface inventor at Apple from 2007 until 2011. He was a member of the small group of people who worked on the initial design for the iPad and contributed to the development of other products, including the Apple Watch. Victor received attention for his talk, Inventing on Principle, in 2012 and The Future of Programming 2013. A major motivation for Victor's work is to make it easier and faster to use complex tools and ideas. I will put a link to his Inventing on Principle video, which is absolutely jaw-dropping and shows a way to develop and interact with code that just seems utterly magical. And I will also put a link to a page on worrydream.com that shows prototypes of his vision of how code should work called Media for Thinking the Unthinkable. Incidentally, many people put Brett Victor's work into the same category as a seminal Doug Engelbert 1968 Mother of All Demos presentation. I'll read from his Wikipedia entry. The Mother of All Demos is a name retroactively applied to a landmark computer demonstration given at the ACM IEEE Computer Society's Fall Joint Computer Conference. This 90-minute demonstration demonstrated for the first time many of the fundamental elements of modern personal computing, Windows, hypertext, graphics, efficient navigation and command input, video conferencing, the computer mouse, word processing, dynamic file linking, version control, and collaborative real-time editors. 
This demonstration was highly influential and spawned similar projects as Xerox PARC in the 1970s. The underlying concepts and technologies influenced both the Apple Macintosh and the Windows graphical user interface in the 1980s and 1990s. Okay, so the point here is that there's such value to be able to see what you're doing as you're doing the work, as opposed to being stuck in a batch mode where you write your code, compile the code, deploy the code, and then a couple weeks later you get to see it in production. Okay, back to the interview. So it's been six years since the first edition of the DevOps Handbook came out. So what has been the most surprising thing for you since that book came out six years ago? I think the thing that has surprised me most is the extent to which Docker and Kubernetes have really taken off in a really big way and completely changed the landscape. And also the extent to which I've been able to completely ignore them (laughs) and still do my job. Um, I still haven't used either of those technologies in in anger. Like they, they they've done stuff for me. Like I know that Docker is or containerization I've used. Docker as a product I've never used. Kubernetes, you know, I, I've used that once. In fact, in the when I was working for the US federal government, uh, we have this thing called the Federalist, which is a, a publishing platform, and that runs on Kubernetes. So I, I kind of used it as a user, but I've never touched either of those things, really. So th- that for me has kind of been interesting. There's an irony here because you are now an SRE supporting Google Cloud Run, which is entirely dependent on containers. <laughs> yes, I mean, it, uh, exactly right. But it's the concept of it rather than the implementations. And I think the, the concept actually, as you say, goes back to Solaris Zones, goes back to Borg, obviously, so definitely the ideas have been very powerful, but the, those particular manifestations of those ideas, I, I've, I've kind of been able to ignore. But it has been really interesting to watch that whole thing play out. Containerization, Docker, Kubernetes, service meshes, you know, and a lot of these ideas that we talk, you know, I remember working in financial services in London in the early noughties being, you know, and everyone was, to, compute grids were the next big thing. Um <laughs> And and that never really happened, but now we have Kubernetes and, and people are doing this kind of the same kind of ideas. In fact, it's funny. I still remember. Uh um, I think all years, right? Uh, the at least from 2013 to 2019, the state of DevOps uh, research surveys were done on PHP in a <laughs> was it Linode? I can't. I think it was actually Gandhi. I used that. It's a French hosting company. <laughs> in the first year, I remember you used this. Uh, 64k uh, memory partition. <laughs> yeah, you you were you were yeah you, you made fun of me for doing that, which was entirely merited. Um, but I'm just you know I, it's just who I am. I can't help it. I'm very my, and my wife's always criticizing me for this quite rightly, which is I'm very parsimonious about dumb things. I like the the, the things that I care about being parsimonious about are the wrong things to be parsimonious <laughs> about. But I really care about them. Um, so I'm constantly trying to deprogram myself from that, but that was a great example of that. Uh, but in fact, if I remember correctly, in, like in 2015, I think he did acquiesce and uh, increase the size of the VM to. Uh, I, I don't think you you refused to go any higher than uh, half a gig. <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> that was my limit. I thought that was being <laughs> extremely. You know, I was really over engineering that thing with half a gig. So. In the DevOps Handbook, uh, we have a section that's really about principles, and we have a set on patterns. So what has been your favorite pattern that went into the DevOps Handbook? So one of the things that we talked about in the second edition that we didn't talk about in the first edition 
which I'm a huge fan of, is some of the work that we did in 2019, ah. where we looked at we looked at adoption basically and transformations and patterns of transformation and how companies adopt um, the ideas that we talk about in the book and uh, how we looked at dojos and uh, communities of practice and prototypes and all these other you know training institutes and centers of excellence and all these things that people use to to implement uh, transformations of all kinds not just devops and that that was pretty interesting so yeah in 2019 we looked at you know transformation strategies training center center of excellence proof of concepts communities of practice big bang mashups and what we find is that the elite performers tend to use community structures. They basically build community structures in order to help adopt ideas. And that, that's things like proof of concepts as a seed, uh, communities of practice, uh, grassroots stuff. And so they're building community structures to, to share knowledge throughout organizations. And this is probably going to tie into some of the work that you're doing, I imagine, um, with Dr. Stephen Spear. But it was really nice to see that, that community structures are actually really important in, in driving transformation. We tend to think about transformations being either a bottoms up or, or a top down thing. And this shows that that's, it's actually more complex than that. Also, not to say that things like sense of excellence and dojos can't work. They, you know, we see those things in elite performers, but we see them as part of that kind of community structure pattern. So that, I think, is, is really interesting. That's interesting. I mean, and so if we were to sort of think about the organization as a network, these are structures that kind of connect the edges uh, outside of kind of a traditional hierarchy. Is that what's in your head? Yeah, I think that there's two things. Firstly, it's connecting different parts of the organization that might not be normally connected. So communities of practice is an example of that. It's where you get people who, who might not normally talk to each other to get together and share their stories. But also it's it connects part, different parts of the hierarchy you're not just connecting laterally between different groups. You're also connecting up and down within the organization as well because leadership has a really important role in nurturing and developing communities of practice and, and hopefully drawing from them and, and, and helping you know, push those lessons else, else, elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's connecting all kinds of different parts of the structures, I think. And, and right. that for me is what's cool. In fact, uh, our good friend, mutual friend, Elizabeth Hendrickson, she said, you can measure the intelligence of an organization based on the uh, the number of connections and the frequency and the intensity of those communications. And these are the structures that uh, you know create uh, more of those connections and meaningful interactions between them. Yeah, uh, that's great. I love that. So one of my favorite parts of the DevOps Handbook is just how many case studies we have. We have a whole bunch that came from the tech giants, yeah. Facebook, Google, uh, Amazon, uh, but we had so many from large complex organizations. So, and we had 18F in there as well about the uh, the compliance journey that you were on. So that's one of, certainly one of my favorites. How about you? What is one of your favorite case studies in the DevOps handbook? Gene here. I forgot to define 18F. 18F is a technology and design consultancy for the U.S. government inside the U.S. government. 18F partners with agencies to improve the user experience of government services by helping them build and buy technology. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Okay, back to Jez. So yeah, obviously I'm very attached to the 18F case study that we put together. It was a huge privilege and a ton of fun to be working on the cloud.gov team that put together the, the platform as a service that we built that was used by many different federal agencies, actually. Um, 
And to build a platform as a service that was based on modern technology, that we use continuous delivery in order to develop and deploy, and to show that these ideas work, even in a highly regulated context. So, so definitely I have a, a, hop, a soft spot for that and for the team that I worked on and for doing that work and the impact that it had uh, still around today. You can still, um, if, you're, if you're a federal agency, you can still go to cloud.gov and, and sign up and, and use it. Uh, and I think there was some work ongoing to make it available to state and local governments as well. I don't know how far along that is, um, but you should check it out if you're listening to this and you work for a state or local government uh, and see if it's available. I think in the new edition, the case study, earlier we talked about community structures. Uh, there's a case study that we, we put in the new book where we talk about how we did that at Google. And this was this has been talked about by Mike Bland in a blog post on Martin Fowler's blog where he talks about Heartbleed a very long article that starts talking about Heartbleed, but actually kind of <laughs> breaks off in the middle to talk about how testing culture was developed at Google and the uh, the testing on the toilet program, uh, basically how they created a community of practice around testing at Google and uh, developer-led testing. And that, that testing on the toilet program where they basically printed a newsletter off and stuck it to the back of every toilet cubicle to, to kind of educate people about testing so you could never escape um, testing and, and how they basically who should call to learn more <laughs> yeah exactly and 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 that that was hugely impactful and actually there was a paper that came out recently which looked at testing on the toilet um we can maybe link to that in the show Absolutely. notes i think that that's interesting as an example of communities of practice but also as an example of how you know even companies like google that everyone kind of imagines are, are kind of perfectly formed and sprung from the head of use. Uh, practicing all these technologies, you know, Google, and I'm not saying anything that's not in, in the public uh, domain, Google did not have a culture of uh, comprehensive testing and test automation, and it developed one, and it d didn't develop it by the management telling everyone to implement it. They developed it because Google gave people 20% time, and a bunch of people were really passionate about this, and they didn't have resources, but they had passion, and, and they kind of tried all these kind of uh, unusual techniques to, to create this this culture of um, testing, which is you know very strong today at Google, but you know th that's something that anyone can do. It's not something that Google does by dint of being Google. It's something that <laughs> Google does indirectly by giving people the resources and the time to to try things out and experiment. You're saying if uh, you have uh, printers in your organization and uh, toilet stalls, uh, you too <laughs> can pull off your own testing on the toilet program. That's now, right. <laughs> hard to do in the or harder to do in a kind of virtual <laughs> remote first setting but and I will um, put a conspicuous note that uh, Mike Bland spoke about this at the 2015 DevOps Enterprise Summit <laughs> yeah <laughs> awesome Jez I have to tell you it's been so much fun I have a big my, my cheeks hurt from, <laughs> from smiling so much uh, uh, is there anything else that uh, you want to share um, as always it's been an absolute pleasure it's we, we haven't caught up so much the last the last year or so, I think, and which reflects just the, the level of craziness, I think, that, that has been going on. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's been great to work with you again on DevOps Handbook 2nd Edition. Really happy with how that's come out. Um, very proud to be a part of the, the evolution of that. Really happy that we got Nicole's contributions Nicole. and that she's played such a huge part in the 2nd Edition. That That's great. So I think that's going to add a, a lot of extra depth to, to the content. Um, and I, I'm very pleased with how that's come out. And yeah, no doubt this is uh, not the end, but just another <laughs> beginning. 
it was so great talking to Jez just now. So after a short break, I will be speaking with the last of my co-authors, Dr. Nicole Forsgren. So here at IT Revolution, we've been hard at work bringing you in 2021, two DevOps Enterprise virtual summits, this podcast, two issues of the DevOps Enterprise Journal, and a new immersion course from Dominica de Grandis, renowned author on flow efficiency, who dives into the fundamentals needed to help you better understand your organizational workflows and make them more efficient. And we just published the second edition of the DevOps Handbook, which this episode and the last episode are all about. I mentioned that as much as I love the first edition of the book, I love the second edition even more. The 15 new case studies, mostly from the DevOps enterprise community, including Fannie Mae, Adidas, American Airlines, and the U.S. Air Force. There's over 100 pages of new or updated content, including so many of the solidified learnings from the State of DevOps Research and the Accelerate book. There's a new forward and materials from Dr. Nicole Forsgren. There's an updated afterward from all five co-authors. And there's a new section with new resources at the end of each part of the book. I want to thank Dr. Nicole Forsgren, who joined the authorship team. On top of everything I mentioned above, this expanded edition includes new material from her. She's a good friend and a renowned researcher. She is currently partner and VP of Research and Strategy at Microsoft and was lead researcher on the study of DevOps research and lead author of the Shingo award-winning book, Accelerate. In this world we're living in, where we need to adapt more quickly than ever and create resilient organizations that can respond to turbulent times in order to help our organization survive and win in the marketplace, the topics covered in the DevOps Handbook 2nd Edition are more important than ever. Okay, let's get back to the interview. I met Dr. Nicole Forsgren in 2013, right as we were in the planning stages of the second state of DevOps research study, which was continuing the work that Jez Humble and I had started with Puppet the year prior. So this is the work that eventually went into the 2014 state of DevOps report, which was full of so many amazing breakthroughs. It included the famous Western organizational typology model, showing that culture was one of the top predictors of performance and you will hear the story of how she created this instrument in this interview. And it was also the year that introduced the organizational performance model into the research, where for the first time we were able to test a hypothesis that technology performance could be linked to organizational performance as well. In other words, the finding was that high performers not only had these amazing technical measures, so that's deployment frequency, deployment lead time, change success rate, mean time repair, but those organizations were also twice as likely to achieve organizational and mission goals as measured by meeting or exceeding profitability, market share, and productivity goals. This was such an important finding for us because we wanted to show that DevOps creates business value, that we were solving a business problem, not just a technical problem that could be safely delegated away. And this was a finding that actually got us mentioned in the Wall Street Journal, which was such a huge moment for us. I've described many times that the seven years that we got to work together on the state of DevOps research is one of the achievements that I'm most professionally proud of. And where that study went simply would not have been possible without Dr. Forsgren. She is a world-class researcher. And throughout the years she was on the project, she was the principal investigator. She is not just an expert in technology and DevOps, but she is also expert on research and survey methodology, survey design, analysis, and so much more. 
So I'm looking at a presentation that Dr. Forsgren, Jez, and I did together at the Velocity Conference in June 2014. And one of my favorite slides described what some of our goals were. It was to do industry and academic research that went beyond just anecdote, peer recommendation, description of prior experience, return on investment stories, description of best practices or benchmarks. Instead, it was to do population studies and academic studies. So over the years, we used the population study or cross-population instrument, which is the same type of instrument that the medical community used to determine the link between smoking and early morbidity. Dr. Forsgren made that possible by bringing her incredible sense of rigor and deep expertise. As I alluded to in my previous interview with Jez, this period of time was an incredibly productive one, and I have such fond memories of those frenzied working sessions as we craft these hypotheses, design the survey instrument, watch the responses come in, and then once we had the complete population, we would start the analysis and see whether these hypotheses were confirmed or not. Throughout this process, we would have vigorous argumentation about whether we could cut the data one way or another, arguing about the wording of the findings, and so much more. And without a doubt, the research benefited from all that attention to detail and rigor. Dr. Forthren was such an advocate of the research goals, but she also played the role of referee, holding all of us to the same standards that an academic journal would apply. And you'll hear more about many of these aspects of the work in this interview. So I hope I've conveyed to you that Dr. Forsgren is so good at so many things, but I do want to share one memory that I have of these times, which is the utter awe and amazement I have <laughs> every time I watch Dr. Forsgren use SPSS and Microsoft Excel. So I've been using SPSS since 2005, and I feel like I've done some pretty cool things with it, including writing awful basis code to beat data into submission. But to see Dr. Forsgren use SPSS for real analysis is like watching a world-class pianist perform. It is utterly jaw-dropping. So Dr. Forsgren is the lead author of the Shingo Research Publication award-winning book, Accelerate, The Science of Lean Software and DevOps, Building and Scaling High-Performing Technology Organizations. She also led the commercialization of this work through the DevOps Research and Assessment Organization, affectionately known as DORA. Dora was purchased by Google Cloud in 2018. And she is now partner and VP of Research and Strategy at Microsoft in the famous MSR, Microsoft Software Research Lab. And I am so excited that she was willing to lead the effort to create a second edition of the DevOps Handbook. <laughs> so without a doubt, without her leadership, I'm not sure if a second edition ever would have been created. So uh, I am so excited that she was willing to lead the effort to create a second edition of the DevOps Handbook <laughs> for reasons. For reasons so that involve, we are wonderful collaborators. I am incredibly grateful. Oh, uh, and, and uh, right back at you. So I've introduced you in uh, my words. So can you introduce yourself and uh, describe what you are working on these days? Sure. I run a research lab, Microsoft Research. It's called Developer Velocity Lab. And what we do is we investigate things surrounding developer productivity, community, well-being, and you know some of the really exciting things that are happening around AI-assisted development, right? <laughs> so like when we talk about productivity, there's always this really interesting thing that happens that around, you know, productivity is hard to measure or people are like, oh, well, that's easy, right? Mm. Like lines of code, which you and I know is a nonsense metric, but sure, right? Roll with mm. me, lines of code, sure. Okay, well, what happens when you've got AI-assisted development? Mm. Whether it's assisting with things like 
uh, like Copilot is now a thing, or many other things like, you know, uh, VS Code and IntelliSense, or we have things like uh, tools that help us with merge conflicts. So sure, let's roll with lines of code. Well, what happens when lines of code is entirely out the window, right? So we developed a space framework earlier that help us come up with more holistic measures or the good day project, right? When we're not talking about teams and organizations, but how do we help people have good days and good days more reliably and more consistently. So that is what I'm working on now with an amazing team. And it's also a, a cross organizational team. So uh, it's super exciting. But, you know, before that, as you know, I was uh, working with Dora and we were looking at kind of the, the ship and ship to production process. And before that, you know, some of my foundation was uh, as a, developer. I was a software engineer, a sysadmin. Sure. I even worked on mainframes. <laughs> so I kind of have been around. I was a professor even. So That's awesome. By the way, uh, you had mentioned the famous and storied Microsoft Software Lab. Uh, what has it been like <laughs> to work uh, within that organization? I mean, it's been the source of so many famous publications and uh, things that advanced the profession. Yeah, I have to say, so at, being at MSR, uh, Microsoft Research has been incredible. It's wonderful because you're working with some brilliant people, you know, people who are just foundational to their entire fields. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm working with MacArthur geniuses who I've got a quick question and they'll just open up the calendar and we just sit and nerd out and I'm asking them questions and they're just so delightful and delighted to talk to me. And I'm just like, I, my mind is blown and my whole day is made and people who, you know, like I said, they've been foundational to their field and they're so kind and they're so lovely. And it's almost just this mind melting experience because I've also been in academia where Maybe I'm jaded. I'm totally jaded because I've also worked with people who are foundational to their fields and they're jerk faces. I'm like, I don't want to be here. But at MSR, people are collaborative and open and kind and finding ways to help you. And it's this incredible experience where truly more people together make and create better things. And it's for the better of society and for the better of you. And I I'm so grateful every day. I, in fact, this reminds me, I remember my first time when I got to visit the Software Engineering Institute at Carnegie Mellon University. This was a estimate in 2004. <laughs> and uh, I left, uh, I spent three days there and I left in this euphoric state. <laughs> Everyone, uh, it, it is so much, just, uh, reminds me of uh, what you described about. And it sounds like people there are happy. <laughs> There's a generative, happy organization. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's really wonderful. Oh, that's awesome! In fact, I, I still have I think uh, my I still have my Software Engineering Institute mug uh, that just said because I love the work. <laughs> so yeah, and, and, and to your point about generative, right? Like I've even had calls with people who say, "So you can't do it this way. Like that's really not going to work, or that's not going to fly, or this cannot be a thing." Right? Even going through IRB, you know, our internal IRB. And let me help you find a way to get there. So it's this incredibly collaborative building environment <laughs> where people are offering critical, critical feedback and helping you find a solution. But it's also not this weird thing where it's like, don't come with problems, come with solutions. No, <laughs> sometimes you got to come with a problem and say, this is going to break your project or you can't do this. 
okay, now let's brainstorm together or go ahead and brainstorm off. I got to run. Okay. Now let me help you find this thing. And I'm like, my work is getting so much better. (laughs) Or if I point out a a flaw, no one's mad. People are not mad. That's awesome. Oh, and by the way, what's an EIRB? Oh, institutional review board. So anytime we're dealing with uh, data or systems that involve humans in any way, how do we make sure that we review it so that it's uh, protecting humans, it's ethical to humans, we're thinking of any possible way to make sure that we make our systems better. Awesome, awesome. So great. Congratulations, by the way. (laughs) You deserve it. Thank you. So can you tell me what it's felt like for the state of DevOps research findings to be seemingly at the tip of the tongue of most technology leaders these days? I mean, holy cow, it was actually in the S1 filing (laughs) for GitLab as they were filing to go public. Uh, Tell us about that. It, you know, it's been quite a ride, right? It's been this amazing journey where, you know, when we started this, and even when I think back to, you know, being in my PhD program and trying to think about what I wanted to do and taking this huge pivot into this, I really just wanted to find a way to make the developers' lives better. And then how could I extend that and think of the various ways to do that, right? Because we need to make their work better. We need to make their daily lives better. We need to make their jobs better. We need to sell it to organizations. And then as an academic, we need to be making an impact for some definition of the word impact, right? And when I was in academia, they were using the words broad measures of impact, right? Because it only used to count if you could get citations, you know, get a publication and get citations. And so now when I think about this, you know, cute little baby research project, and I hate to say that, you know, you know, shout out to the Peppa team, uh, you know, who first thought of this and then Alana, you know, God bless Alana. Cause mm. you know, I rocked up and I'm like, no, let's do this a different way and like deconstruct all of these measures and like introduce all this academic rigor And I was like, trust me, if we do it this way, it's going to be, we'll get a twofer. And then Alana still did her like marketing and PR and like design magic. And we like brought this incredible team together. And now it has turned into something that, you know, when I think about broad measures of impact, (laughs) (laughs) this is a hell of a broad measure of impact, right? And, And when we think about what we've been able to do as this like small but mighty team and how it really has kind of changed the industry, executives use it tooling teams use it is turned into this industry standard of how do we think about and measure and gauge systems, right? It's hidden S1 filing. It's, you know, open source systems use it, for-profit systems use it, surveys use it, telemetry systems use it, and peer review papers use it. And I'm so grateful that we could start with something and, and rigorously measure it year over year and find such great signal and, and some days I sort of pinch myself. And at the same time, I'm like, okay, hey, what else can we find that's better? Can we find mm-hmm. something that's better to replace it? And then also it's this thing where I'm like, we haven't found something yet. There's some really great signal here. Awesome. And how has it felt? <laughs> I think, I don't want to say validating, but rewarding. Yeah. I think even rewarding. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah. we used the measures in this year's Octoverse, right? So we we surveyed in the data that kind of coalesced around that, over 12,000 people (laughs) across core GitHub users and open source, and it still held. So like so many different users and across so many different systems, and it's such a solid signal. It's (laughs) such a good signal. Awesome, awesome. Ah, The mark of great theory. So 
We've been at this for nine years now. <laughs> so what for you has been the most surprising, uh, delightful, uh, you know, put your, insert your adjective of choice, finding uh, since the state of DevOps research studies have come out? So I'll say this and it, uh, you may react. Uh, I would say organizational performance, which is almost <laughs> funny now. I think we take it for granted, but when we first tossed this measure and when we were first working together, I don't know if you remember, but I was like, I'm going to try this. I think... You know, back then we were calling it IT perf. Now we call it software mm-hmm. delivery performance. But, you know, this, these speed and stability measures, I think it's going to impact the way organizations perform. And I just threw it in. I grabbed this measure out of the accounting literature because that's that's how we measure the way organizations perform is on their financial statements. So I threw it away. I threw it in there as like a, maybe a throwaway measure. I included it. And I was like, it's probably going to fall out. Like, I don't think it's going to be statistically predictive. I don't think it's going to hold. But I think there's something there, right? Because we've been around this DevOps <laughs> thing for a while. 40 years of academic literature says this isn't going to work. <laughs> 40 years. And it did. And the reason that it did is because DevOps is fundamentally different, right? You don't, it's not just, just ROI, I'm figure quoting here, right? It's not just ROI because you don't like invest some money and walk away. It's because it's a fundamentally different way of doing work because you have to have the tech, you have to have the process, you have to have the culture. It has to be this holistic core transformation where you're creating, you know, a sustained competitive advantage. And that's, it was such a surprise. And I think that's, you know, really one of the reasons we, we hit so much press with the wall street journal. And now, like you said, you know, we're nine years in and people are like, well, of course it makes a difference. Of course you see two extra turns. Of course this is a thing. But that, that was also really where I was like, oh, this is it. Because not only do we reduce, you know, I think that first year we maybe did like deploy paint or something. We had initial, we had early, early signals that it was actually making lives better. So I'm not sure if you remember this, but I was a believer the whole time, maybe even naively. But I, I remember uh, showing you the book uh, by Paul Strassman, so who has studied you know technology for going on 30 years. He was a CIO of the Department of Defense of Kraft of Xerox, and he uh, he spent 20 years of his life looking for the return of investment on technology. Uh, he was doing things like counting paper that are coming off of copy machines. He's looking at you know uh, technology spend, and you know he could not find it. And yet, for over 10 years. The reason we had done the benchmarking work before was this quest to try to find you know, the, the signal that you know technology could improve business performance. And so I remember uh, when uh, how I remember seeing you put that instrument into the survey and uh, just how how you crafted uh, the hypothesis. I mean, it was amazing. And so I remember I think that was like one of the findings where we were on a. What were you? It was before Zoom. <laughs> You're sharing your screen in SPSS as we were uh, generating the findings uh, together. <laughs> just that that feeling of seeing that signal. I mean, it was just uh, elation, euphoric. I mean, uh, just one of those. Uh, I felt like it was the quest <laughs> that was not coming to an end, right? But showing that the quest was real, right? It was there, yeah. And now I, I will say, Eric Brynjolfsson at MIT had been doing some early work. <laughs> So he was one of the first to find this signal too. But but there really had not been much, right? We've got like 30, 40 years of like, we know it's there. 
we're not sure. We can't quite capture it. Eric Brynjolfsson had found like one or two studies where like there was some there and we're like, we know it's there, but how do you capture it right? And I think that missing link was software delivery performance because you can't go from investments in IT, (laughs) right? Because you don't like invest in, you don't do continuous delivery and make money. You do continuous delivery so that you can do things better, whether it's better features, uh, recover faster, right? It's what you deliver to your customers in order to make money. It's what you do for your users in order to make money. So it's that missing link. Ah, so good. Which is so the, good. the DevOps, right? <laughs> <laughs> so awesome. Um, in fact, I'm, I'm having this big grin <laughs> as we're talking about the, you know, those set of findings associated with that. Uh, by the way, uh, while I have you on the call, one of my favorite ones is architecture. And I just remember the words, architecture was one of the strongest predictors of uh, continuous delivery, even more so than automated testing <laughs> or version control, which I just loved. And by the way, I, I, often, I, th- I think I sometimes um, speak and say is one of the top predictors of performance. Uh, to what degree can you assert the, the importance of architecture? I mean, I think architecture is super important, right? Because it ends up being entangled in so many of those other things, right? Architecture enables so many things. It's really hard to do continuous delivery if you have a really tough architecture. Now, the other interesting thing, though, is that architecture, if you have a well-architected system, it enables many other things. So you can do many things on a mainframe if you think about your architecture well, right? Because if you have... Even even with a mainframe, if you think about your architecture and you find ways to have things be loosely coupled, which I say, so I, I was on mainframes, if you have a lot of subroutines, you can start treating that mainframe like sort of a loosely coupled architecture system. So good. So we talked about the most important and most delightful finding of organizational performance. So those performance measures are caused by you know, patterns. Like I guess so we divide them up into... Uh, technical practices, cultural norms, and architecture. So what is your favorite pattern, (laughs) the things that actually influence performance? You know, I I think there are a few, but it may come down to culture for me because, for a few reasons. One, because it's hard. Another, because culture can end up playing a role so many different places and you can't just throw money at it, right? So, and because it influences so many things, right? Because, you know, we always have, you know, the Conway's, insert Conway's law joke, uh, DevOps bingo, right? But you can make changes throughout the culture, you can make changes throughout the organization, and it ends up imprinting itself so many different places, right? It's it's almost like shadow IT, you've got shadow culture, right? So many times people think they can just throw money at tech and it will be fine. If you throw money at tech and you have a broken culture, you can only get so far, it's just not going to work. And if you can find ways to fundamentally change your culture, you can get really, really far with whatever tech stack you have, right? I've seen people do magical things on mainframes, right? I was meeting with the Navy a couple months ago, and they're doing incredible things with with very old tech stacks that they cannot change because they are embedded in ships, right? Yeah. You can be fundamentally innovative and you can find ways to make things work when you've got that culture figured out. Like people are just, the ingenuity there is incredible. What do you think, what did you learn about culture in uh, this journey? 
So the research has done a lot for me, right? We've found a few things that like are predictive. There's definitely kind of a, a reinforcement loop there. I learned a lot by meeting with a lot of teams, development teams, executives. I learned a lot by just meeting with so many, so many teams in so many different industries, highly regulated industries, startups, top secret <laughs> fields. Culture is going to make or break you. And if you let people learn and grow and find very creative solutions, you can just make magic happen, right? I've seen people do the most innovative things in air-gapped environments, right? <laughs> right? Like over-the-air updates in air-gapped environments and like magic is happening. Where you or, literally cannot see the other side. <laughs> yeah, you literally cannot see anything happening. And they're finding incredibly creative ways to make things work. Some of the things that I found are that, you know, when you give people space, you need space, you need permission, you need empowerment to find solutions. I loved that part of the ideal cast with uh, Dr. Westrom. Oh. Uh, you know, it's, it's right, right? I mean, a bad leader can, can just poison a well in ways that are really difficult to recover from. Sometimes you can create, like if you can just kind of umbrella or shield an organization that can sometimes work, but it's from what I've been able to witness, it's, it's almost amazing how quickly a toxic leader can just poison an entire environment because fear, fear can kill almost anything. And then there's no incentive to do good things. There's, it's just too hard. And by the way, uh, I have to thank you for that introduction to uh, uh, Dr. Ron Westrom. <laughs> In fact, I told the story before, but uh, I, I remember that feeling when I saw that email <laughs> where uh, you had CC'd me on a, on a thread uh, where that involved Dr. Ron Westrom. <laughs> and I remember texting you saying, is this who I think it is? <laughs> Do you mind if I reach out? I mean, what, uh, can you tell us the story behind that? He is, I am so grateful to him. He is so <laughs> wonderful. I, I have to say, I was this adorable little baby junior faculty member, and I shot him an email out of the blue, and he's this like emeritus genius <laughs> senior faculty. And I was like, by the way, I'm using your work in some of my research. Thanks so much. Here's what I've done. Here's a paper. And he emailed me back. <laughs> I was like, what are you doing? Um, I, it, it was just kind and lovely. Yeah. And then we kept in touch over the years, every, every two to three years, yeah. he'd email me and say, hi, ask me if I had anything to share, ask me for like results on validity and reliability checks for his work. Cause we <laughs> turned his typology, which was a table into valid, reliable survey questions and measures. I was like, by the way, this is now industry standard. By the way, here's a tweet. Someone's <laughs> like, it's, it's now known as the Westrom. Typology, because like, listen, I, I'm a researcher. I'm not creative. I don't name things. So we just called it the Western cultural model. Like, no one wants to use anything else. By the way, you're you're super famous now. I mean, he was before, <laughs> and he was just lovely. And then I think you you wanted to meet him, so I just like shot you an email and an intro, and he got right back to us. <laughs> not that he's not super busy, because of course he is, but he was so kind. Yeah. And by the way, it 
those four hours of interviews, it, to me, it was just so dazzling. And it, I find it so gratifying that uh, he's now showing up in the DevOps circles as well. He spoke at the Launch Darkly conference. <laughs> so I love that uh, yeah. uh, people now see him not just as uh, a table, <laughs> but as you know, the person behind the table, which is just uh, so amazing. <laughs> he's, he is so lovely. Uh, agreed. Uh, awesome. What do you feel like is the most important thing that you learned you know, in this journey? Uh, uh, that's about culture. But uh, what's been the most delightful learning for you? Yeah, um, I think a few things. One is that you can, you can really give people tools and you can influence a, a broader set of folks and you can empower them and you can make a big change. Hmm. So, so for that, I think about, you know, Soder, State of DevOps Report, you know, this, this broad set of work that we had was at its core a research project, right? And if we find ways to make it accessible, you know, easy to read, easy to use, you can help people do great work and move pretty quickly, right? Like, I did it as an academic work, but when we found ways to make it almost like an adult picture book, right? <laughs> big font, big tools, uh, work with a copy editor so that if people want, they can screenshot or take a single page, right? Like we didn't have line breaks in weird places. You can easily drop it into a slide deck or a board deck or anything else. Use pictures that are easy to use. We can help and we can empower anyone to use this really easily, right? So I thought of this strategically. We tried to write it for three audiences, developers, engine managers, and executives. So we always tried to have something that a developer could use, right? So like, what makes CI impactful and predictive and useful? Every check-in of code has automated tests, automated builds, um, and is like green, right? Any dev can do that using any tool. Any vendor can build something on that, right? Eng managers can do the same thing, right? So it's like you had actionable guidance. Executives, right? What is org performance, right? If I'm or cloud, if I'm making investments in cloud, what are the five things I need for any cloud? And why do I care? Because you're 23 times more likely to be an elite performer than not if you're doing cloud right, right? So that was nice. And then when we commercialized it, when we created Dora, benchmarks are there. Benchmarks are candy, right? Everyone wants a benchmark. Everyone wants to compare. But when we had that priority matrix, we basically tricked people into strategy because everyone wanted to talk to us to say, well, what should I do next? But that's consulting and consulting didn't scale. Now, God bless our partners. We had a wonderful partner network to help build out detailed roadmaps. But what could scale was, what should I do next? How should I think about prioritization? Okay, well, I could give you three to five to seven top things to think about instead of 50. And then I could have a quick discussion with you for 30 minutes or an hour to help you think through what was most important in your context. And so giving, and then once they were done with us, they could run it at scale, internal to their organization. It was a SaaS-based tool. And so I think realizing and learning that for myself was finding ways to give people research-based tools that they could use and then they could run. And they didn't need us anymore. Right now, all of this is like available online. It's basic. It's free, right? The quick checks online. All of the door based tools are online. People can That's make awesome. themselves better really quickly. 
Based on science. <laughs> Based on science, right? And stories are great because stories mm-hmm. and numbers together are great, but anyone can get better. Awesome, awesome. So I, uh, I, had, I had mentioned that I'm so delighted that you were able to lead the effort to come up with the second uh, edition of the DevOps Handbook. And by the way, I, I love the book. <laughs> it's just, I, really, I really love the book. Uh, it's so and, fantastic. And it's so much better now. And I think one of the reasons why I love the book so much is the fact that it has so many case studies. And there's even more case studies now in the second edition. So what is your favorite case study in the DevOps Handbook? So I think my favorite case study is... The one that shows the power of, you know, using these methods that we call DevOps, right? And it's the one from the hospital. All right, Streer, Dr. Chris Streer. Streer, okay. our good, but uh, yes, Dr. Chris Streer. So, Dr. Chris Streer. So, and he, you know, we were able to chat, and he highlighted the power of so many of these approaches because it applies anywhere, right? Any, so many times people are like, oh, well, this won't work here. Well, this won't work for me. Well, this won't work for my team. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> if these approaches work in a hospital, it's definitely going to work for your team because it's about thinking about what tooling you have and how you can apply this to the tooling at your disposal. <laughs> okay, so maybe the tooling that we talk about in this chapter isn't exactly what you have. <laughs> okay, well, how, how do the principles that we talk about apply to the tooling that you have? How do the processes that we talk about apply to the process that you're using? When we talk about the culture, how does, apply, how does it apply most closely to the culture where you are? And that's the part that I really loved because anyone can make improvements and it's usually not a small improvement. It's usually... <laughs> a huge improvement. And, and that's the one I love because it can just like blow the roof off of anyone's thinking. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, just uh, by reducing the number of ambulance diverts, uh, the increase in employee engagement, ability to retain a talent. I mean, it's just uh, uh, such a great story. I also have a friend who is an orthopedic surgeon and he read Accelerate. And I was like, <laughs> what? what are you doing? Why are you reading Accelerate? And he was like, you know, a couple of the really technical chapters I didn't really quite get. But he said many of the other things really made sense to him and really applied. And I was like, right, again, same thing. Absolutely. And by the way, one of the things I love about the Dr. Chris Streer case study, actually it was in the talk, (laughs) was that the end of the initiative came with the change in leadership where these things were not valued. (laughs) The the sad part of the story is that after he moved on, uh, this amazing story he tells about this incredible breakthrough performance uh, over three years vanished and they reverted back to the uh, not great states uh, where the story began. And it it just shows the the importance of leadership. So much of it is about leaders. And and, the other thing I really loved about that story was when it was going, right? It was going really well is it went from it being so difficult to get nurses to nurses wanting to work there. It says so much about work culture. And that's an incredibly difficult field. Same thing with development right now, right? Look where we are and everyone's burning out and it's such a difficult time to work. It says a lot, right? And I love that part. I I always want to look for the human element because... You know, as as uh, Doctor, you know, Christina Maslak always says, when you're canaries, when you've got <laughs> canaries, don't replace the canaries, fix the mine. <laughs> right, right. 
Your people tell you a lot about your work environment. Uh, but as a aside, I was talking to the chief operating officer of uh, Legacy Health here in uh, Oregon, and he said they're actually. You take this very uh, tight labor market in uh, nursing already, then you introduce uh, mandatory vaccination, and uh, you know, a surprisingly a high number of people are quitting. They're quitting because of uh, mandatory vaccination. I saw a statistic uh, that was like uh, one out of five people in healthcare have quit. So uh, just to, to quantify exactly what you're talking about, the dynamics in the healthcare industry around labor shortages is just, uh, just mind-blowing. Okay, Gene here. Dr. Forsgren mentioned the amazing Dr. Christina Maslach, whose research both she and I love. Dr. Maslach is a professor of psychology, professor emerita, and researcher at the Healthy Workplaces Center at the University of California, Berkeley. She is the author of the amazing book, The Truth About Burnout, and has developed the leading research measure called the Maslach Burnout Inventory. She gave an amazing talk at the DevOps Enterprise Summit London 2018, where she talked about her lifetime of work in this domain. She talked about how burnout is a hot topic in today's workplace, given its high cost for both employees and organizations. And she talked about her research and the empirical findings that show that burnout is largely a function of the social environment in which people work. And there are six critical areas of mismatch between the person and the job. One of the most amazing lines in her talk is when she talked about how the majority of the literature and discussion in the workplace is on the canary suffering burnout, about how we can build more resilient canaries, when the real discussion should be about the coal mine, which is killing all the canaries. So I will put a link to that video in the show notes. I'm also going to put a link to another amazing panel that happened the following year with Dr. Maslach, Dr. Forsgren, and Dr. Andre Martin, who at the time was the VP of People Dev at Google. There is some fantastic discussion of burnout in this panel, as well as about workplace engagement, where I got some incredible insights on the ideas that are behind the second ideal of focus, flow, and joy, which appear in the Unicorn Project. Number two. Dr. Forsgren mentioned the U.S. Navy case study about work that involved deploying into top-secret environments. This is such an interesting use case because apparently it's very common, where the people developing the application don't have the clearance to actually use or even see it running in the top-secret environment. For this reason, I was so excited in 2018 when Dan Gaffer, former DISA PM for the Forge.mil program, and Jeff Payne, CEO of Coveris, described how they were able to do exactly this for the Forge.mil program for the Defense Information Systems Agency, which, among other things, manage many shared services that span the U.S. Department of Defense. Forge.mil is the Department of Defense's collaborative development platform for rapid delivery of dependable software, services, and systems in support of net-centric operations. Most striking about this experience report is how they managed to build a CICD pipeline that deployed into a production environment that they couldn't ever see. <laughs> Number three, Dr. Forsgren also mentioned the case study by Dr. Chris Streer. So he's a medical doctor, not a PhD, who I mentioned in my Ideal Cast episode with Trent Green, Chief Operating Officer of Legacy Health, on how the Mass Vaccination Clinic in Portland, Oregon, was able to increase the number of vaccinations from 100 an hour to 1,300 an hour. So Dr. Streer was with me as we toured the Mass Vaccination Clinic. He is now Chief Medical Officer at Columbia Memorial, and he gave a phenomenal presentation at the DevOps Enterprise Summit 2021 on the work that he did to improve flow within an emergency department. I'm going to read a couple of excerpts from that case study. 
He described how the conditions in the hospital, we were so crowded and flow was so backed up that our emergency department was on ambulance diversion for 60 hours a month on average. That means for 60 hours a month, our emergency department was closed to the sickest patients in our community. One month, we hit over 200 hours of diversions. We couldn't keep nurses. It was such a hard place to work that nurses would quit. We relied on temporary nurses, on agencies for placing nurses or traveler nurses to fill in the gaps in staffing. She described how the president of the hospital recognized how bad things were, and she put together a committee for flow, and he was lucky enough to be put on that committee, and described the incredible transformation that occurred. Within one year, they had basically eliminated ambulance diversion. They went from 60 hours a month of ambulance diversion to 45 minutes a month. They improved the length of stay for all admitted patients, shortening the time that patients spent in the emergency department. They virtually eliminated patients who left the department without being seen because the waits were too long. And we did this in a time when we had record volumes, record ambulance traffic, and record admissions. He said, we took better care of patients. It was safer, and it felt so much easier to take care of patients. It was such an amazing turnaround, in fact, that we were able to stop hiring temporary nurses. We were able to fill our staff completely with dedicated emergency nurses who were qualified to work there. In fact, our department became the number one place for emergency nurses to want to work in the Portland-Vancouver area. He said, I had never been a part of anything that amazing before, and I haven't been since. We made patient care better for tens of thousands of patients, and we made life better for hundreds of healthcare workers in our hospital. He described how he used the theory of constraints after reading the book, The Goal, And the problems and solutions will sound so familiar to anyone in the DevOps community. Everything from prioritization to silo culture to the role of leaders. And I'll put a link to that talk in the show notes. Lastly, number four, I had mentioned in the very beginning of the interview about the state of DevOps research showing up in the S1 filing for GitLab. (laughs) So the S1 paperwork is what you file to go public with the Security Exchange Commission. In order to go public, you must file an S-1 before the security can be listed. Form S-1 requires companies to provide information on the planned use of capital proceeds, detail on the current business model and competition, and provide a brief prospectus on the planned security itself. I will put a link in the show notes to a tweet by Kelly Shortridge, where she was breaking down the GitLab S-1 that was posted on September 17, 2021. (laughs) And in there are the Dora metrics are four key metrics that the industry has widely adopted and that GitLab supports two of the four metrics, deployment frequency and lead time for changes, and provides temporal dashboards to identify the behavior of metrics over time. That was pretty wild. And it's something that I certainly never would have predicted when we were working on the state of DevOps research. Okay, back to the interview. Is there anything else that uh, you want to share? Just that I'm so excited. I was able to, to join second edition. It's an incredible book. I was so excited to see all the updates that were that we got to add, and the case studies are incredible. And we even have a couple of extra in the online materials. I know there's one that we got added from the Navy. So, um, I listen. There was there was too much good stuff to add. We had too much. I would say that's probably my second favorite because listen, the Navy's doing things that like other people are not doing. <laughs> so. We've got some really, really exciting things. Uh, congratulations on getting that case study, by the way. Thank <laughs> That's you. Absolutely it was, I, had, I had too many really fun, really exciting conversations with them. They are doing some groundbreaking work. Uh, can you tell us about that case study? 
I am trying to remember which hit final mm. because they had a few examples, but I know um, some of the things they're doing include, like I was kind of mentioning, they've got air-gapped work, they've got mm. over-air updates, they are helicoptering in work and then doing final approvals <laughs> over an app with push notifications. And it's almost just this perfect <laughs> example of what you can do in top secret, highly regulated, very important environments. But if you give people the space to almost think about, and it's this phrase I've been using lately, imagine a world, right? (laughs) What if you could do something and then just give people a little bit of brain space to just imagine possibilities and say, okay, but this is the tech I have, right? Their tech, trust me, their tech is not written about in this book, right? Like the tech is not written about a DevOps handbook, but okay, given the tech that we have, what if we had a little bit of space to do something and they come up with the most innovative solutions and the most innovative, (laughs) creative ways to to come up with something that is absolutely within bounds. And then they present these and Bill Bonwit is director over there. And they're like, absolutely, let's submit this. And it goes (laughs) up and, and then their head of all IT across the Navy was like, uh, absolutely, (laughs) right? And I think that is what really encapsulates this incredible culture, right? What can be possible? Because yes, you know what? We all have some kind of constraints, right? (laughs) Everyone has some kind of constraint no matter what, right? Startups are going to have less money. Large corporations are going to have more money, but more regulations or more cruft, right? You're all going to have a constraint. So how do you operate within those constraints? <laughs> I love the constraints on a U.S. Navy ship. <laughs> you are often disconnected. <laughs> you are physically remote. <laughs> you know, uh, right? Uh, top you're, dealing, you're probably dealing with 30-year-old hardware <laughs> on an operating system that doesn't exist anywhere else. Sometimes. Oh, flipping awesome. Uh, Nicole, thank you so much. Uh, I will make sure that uh, we get you on the Ideal Cast to do a single topic interview of things that we care so much about. But uh, I am so delighted that uh, we were able to get you today. So thank you. Thank you, Nicole. Thanks so much, Gene. And that is our show. Thank you for listening. For updates on new episodes and the lineup for this year's season, please go to itrevolution.com and sign up for our newsletter. We have super big plans for the remainder of the year, and I'm so excited to bring them to you. The Ideal Cast is produced by IT Revolution, where our goal is to help technology leaders succeed and their organizations win through books, events, podcasts, and research. <laughs>